Hi there. Uh, it's Saturday morning in LA and I thought I would uh, have a chat for 20 minutes. The same rules as always. I'll talk. Uh, feel free to say hi, ask a question, throw a comment into the mix. Uh, some people will watch live and some people will watch after the fact. Um, so last night I was at the Secret Philosophical Society in LA and we were talking about the theme of happiness. It was called Overcoming Optimism. And I did some reflections on frustration, happiness and social change. Uh, as you know, uh, if you're outside America and definitely if you're inside America, these are, these are dark days. And there's a lot to reflect on about how to have effective social transformation and how to bring solidarity among the people who are most um, at risk from uh, the violence and from systems of oppression. And uh, at some point, you know, I, you know, I want to comment more directly on that. But I was uh, partly inspired to think about, you know, what does it mean to be an instrument of social change, an instrument of good in the world, uh, to take our frustrations, to uh, instead of trying to run from them, what it means to perhaps uh, use those frustrations in a productive way. And uh, so I started off with Freud. Uh, for Freud, uh, he says, we are forged from the fires of frustration. At a very personal level, frustration is part of what it means to be human. Uh, he actually says that from the very beginning, uh, our first experience of life uh, is really born of that. Uh, whenever we uh, experience ourselves being taken away from our mother's breast and we feel coldness and we feel hunger, we feel some sense of loss, that's when we start to kind of become conscious of ourselves as separate, as different. Uh, that's when we become conscious of what we have and what we don't have. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's suddenly a separation between, between those two things. Uh, even in my own life as a child, I didn't speak until I was like well past the age of speaking. And uh, speech therapists came around and they couldn't figure out why I, I didn't talk. And then one speech therapist noticed that every time I pointed at something, my sister, who was four years older than me, Barbara, she would go out and pick up what I was pointing at and give it to me. So I would just point at stuff and she would get it. I also didn't walk until like way after I was supposed to walk because I didn't have to. My sister was looking after me and the speech therapist said, you've got to tell your daughter to stop doing that. And so Barbara stopped and of course I start speaking <laughs> because now I'm frustrated. I'm not getting what I want and so the frustration breathes language. That's a kind of anecdotal thing but at a deeper level frustration kind of is, is part of our very beginnings. But not only is there a frustration between what we have or do not have and what we would like, at a very early stage in our development, we develop a frustration between who we are and who we would like to be. Uh, this is at a point called the mirror phase when we, we look in a mirror and we see a baby, we see ourselves, but that baby looks much more complete and in control than we are. We experience our inner world as a place of chaos. We're always falling over, we're a bit crap, we're just like can't really get what we want, we're always tripping. Um, and yet 
there is this other child who is us, who looks like they've got it all sorted out. Uh, we're, we're reflected in maybe our mother or father saying, you're strong, you know, look how great you are. And you have, so you, have, you start to develop this image that you're strong and that you're competent. And yet, of course, your inner world doesn't fit that. So there becomes this difference between who you are and who you would like to be. So both of these are very fundamental in psychoanalytic theory. The idea that from the very beginning, we, we have you know, what we have and what we would like, who we are and who we would like to be. And so this means that we create double lives. We all have double lives. Uh, Adam uh, Phillips, I'm actually reading Adam Phillips at the moment, this really nice book called Missing Out. He talks about how we all have a life that we live and unlived lives. So we have at least double lives. We have multiple lives that we don't live, that we wish we did. There is who we are and there is who we would like to be. And there's what we have and there's what we would like to have. And if you're in a relationship with somebody, you're never just in relationship to who they are and their lived life. You're also in relationship to their unlived life because that affects us. We, in a sense, live between these two spheres. And this causes deep frustration often in our lives. We, um, we look at what we've got and we fantasize about what we'd like. If we're married, we think, oh, what would it like, be like if I was single? If we're single, we can think, what would it be like to be married? Or um, if we're living in one particular country, we think, what would it be like if I was able to move to another country or change my job or whatever it is? We all, to greater or lesser extents, are caught in this bind. Now Freud used the terms pleasure principle and reality principle to clarify this. He said as human beings we have this pleasure principle and that simply is that you want to be uh, the best that you can be, you want to have what you want to have, you know, you, you want to be strong, you want to be popular, you maybe want money or you want peace or you want more time to read books or you want to be more creative, whatever it is, that's your pleasure principle pleasure in the widest possible sense of just things that you would like and when you're young when you're a child the pleasure principle is incredibly strong you know you want to win all the games you play you want to set up games with people where you're the central character but of course you can't do that and this is the reality principle the reality principle is just when the fact that life and other people don't put you in the center uh, that you come up against other people's desires and you come up against limits. Uh, and in a sense, what we have to do when we're young is navigate this tension between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. And we have to learn to compromise. We have to learn how to kind of interact with, with other people. Now, these two things mean that we aren't coupled correctly with the universe. There is something inherent to being human, which means that we are kind of out of joint. Uh, I've talked about this on previous Facebook Lives uh, because Camus talks about it as being the absurd. Camus' name for this kind of like uh, rupture between pleasure and reality as an experience of the absurd. You want a universe where you're special, where you have meaning, you have purpose, where things go right, where the universe kind of is arced in your favor, arched in your favor. But you encounter often a universe that seems indifferent to you, 
where you're not special, where things go wrong, um, where you are on the periphery, not the center. And this causes um, an experience in your life, as I say, which Camus calls the absurd. Uh, Freud had a term for it, call it the death drive. It gives rise to this death drive. Um, and uh, Lacan talked about it in terms of sexual union, where he said there is no such thing as sexual rapport or sexual union. And kind of what he means by that is we often fantasize that although we feel uncoupled with the universe, there is somebody out there or something out there that will make us whole and complete. This ancient Greek myth that you're like two kind of parts of a circle and when you meet your beloved, you form the perfect circle and you have sexual union. And Lacan says, no, sadly not. Whether you're monogamous or polyamorous or whether you're whatever, uh, a lot of our desires are attempts to get rid of the frustration, the sense of incompleteness, the sense of not being coupled correctly with the world, of not having what we would like or not being who we would like to be. Um, but they're all failures, they're all failed attempts. Because according to this theory, um, there's something about being human that causes frustration. Now, when you look at life, there's basically two different ways that uh, people try to overcome this frustration uh, in their own lives. The first is conspiring with industries that promote the pleasure principle. So on that, on that side, it might be religions that say, there is no reality principle. Just visualize uh, what you want and you can have it. You know, name it and claim it or the secret or whatever it is. is you can actually have your unlived life. So on the pleasure principle, it is like, yes, your life is a bit mundane and crap, but you can have your dreams and your desires. So that's on the side of the pleasure principle. There are lots of religions and industries that kind of try to help us have pleasure without the reality principle. Now, there's a number of problems with that. Well, firstly, actually, um, Freud very quickly noticed that you can't have pleasure without the reality principle. That actually, you know, if you get, if you get all of your needs met instantaneously, it'll be really depressing. There was a Twilight Zone that had an episode where this guy dies and he goes to heaven and he gets everything he wants instantaneously and he wins every game of roulette he plays. He gets everything. And of course, you know, the twist in the tale is eventually he realizes that he isn't in heaven, he's in hell. And uh, this hell is called melancholia. Melancholia is the name given to the experience of getting everything you want. It just kind of breeds a form of living death. It, this, this profound ennui, this profound boredom. And you know, it just, it just doesn't lead to pleasure at all. So if you could go into a pleasure room, the, the old pleasure experiment, where a room which gives you everything you want in virtual reality, uh, you know, without frustration, without pain, without having to work for things, we would find that that happiness machine is actually a machine of, of deep unhappiness. And then on the other side there, we conspire with industries and with religions that seek to commit to the reality principle, denounce your desire for other things, get rid of those, um, you know, engage in spiritual practices that help you become completely at peace with what is, with death, with, um, with limits, with suffering, with affliction. Uh, you know, so you have this kind of these westernized forms of say Buddhism on one side, you have things like the secret on the other side. 
And of course, the problem with giving yourself wholly to the reality principle is that, well, first of all, we do that in the name of pleasure. We often turn to those things because we experience the tyranny of happiness and we want to be more at peace with ourselves. But if we were ever successful in giving ourselves wholly to the reality principle and get rid of any modicum of pleasure we get from that, and that leads to the worst kinds of depression and ultimately suicide. You know, there's, there's something about the human being, for Freud especially, uh, that is more important than life. You know, for, Dar for Darwin and Darwinians, the idea is, is species want to propagate life. That's the kind of the ultimate goal of things, beings. And Freud agrees, except when it comes to peop um, kind of animals of language. And whenever you're an animal of language, uh, Freud says something slightly different enters the picture. And that is meaning or pleasure. And he means pleasure in the widest possible sense, like a life of meaning, a life of significance, a life where you feel you have something to give. If you lose that, um, people will often choose suicide. They will choose death um, over living with that complete loss of any form of libidinal pleasure in life. And in fact, suicide is often engaged in because it's the last way a person gets pleasure. I go, at least someone will miss me when I'm dead. At least the person who hurt me and damaged me, at least, you know, I will be part of their memory now. I will be etched into their memory now that I'm gone. So, so, so often, like I say, suicide itself is a way, a last desperate attempt by an individual to retain some modicum of, of pleasure. Um, so politically speaking, you also kind of can put people into these two camps of pleasure principle and reality principle. Uh, conservative politics is often more in the reality principle. The conservative is, is the one who says, let's conserve society as it is. Better the devil you know uh, than the devil you don't. Um, they are invested in embracing what is and, and not working towards some other unseen utopia, which they believe is probably problematic. Now, interestingly, conservatives often have a fantasy of an unlived life as well. They have that as well, the lived life, which is the world as it is, and the unlived life. And within conservatism, strangely, it's actually often socialism. If you talk to someone who's religious, they might say something like, yes, well, in this world, you can't like rely on people's selflessness or whatever, but you know, in heaven, we will all be equal and we will share equally, right? So this fantasy, the unlived life of the conservative is actually a form of, of socialism, but it's an unlived life that, you know, they, they are ultimately renouncing, saying maybe someday when we die, but, but not in this life. And then on the other side, you have the figure of the revolutionary. The revolutionary is on the side of the unlived life, the kind of pleasure principle. They're saying we can imagine a new world, a, a better world, not the life that we live now politically, but a life, a utopia. We can envision those things. We can make them come to be. Um, so you got those. Now, the, the issue for the, the revolutionary is, unfortunately, the revolutionary is very like the conservative in many ways. The pleasure principle is the idea that if I could get my unlived life, then I'd be happy. But because this frustration is part of what it is to be human, you get your lived life, it will never turn out to be as good as you think it will be. In fact, it can be worse. 
or it can be just as bad. Uh, and when you get it, you have to then fantasize another unlived life. So the revolutionary is always frustrated. And if they get what they want, sometimes, as history shows, the revolutionaries are the ones who are actually killed by their own systems. So is there, is there any other alternative to this? Um, in a lot of my theological work, I talk about Christianity as a religion of the absurd, a religion that embraces the frustrations of life and lives in that. But um, I want to just talk a little bit more about the political dimensions for a second, because Albert Camus, he has a figure that is different from the conservative and the revolutionary. And it is the figure of the rebel. Now for Camus, the rebel is the one who lives in the tension created between the life that is lived and the unlived life. They, instead of what most of us do, which is feel that frustration is painful, it's difficult, we want to get rid of it in any way we can, going to renunciation or going to hedonism, whatever, so get rid of that. The rebel brings that into their very being, brings it into their essence and, and, and robs it of its sting, takes it in as fuel for transformation. They enjoy the frustration, not in some sense of, oh, I'm really getting pleasure from this, but it's what makes them feel alive. It was what makes them act. It's what makes them go out into the world and, 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 and fight for change. So the rebel lives and embraces the space between the lived life and the unlived life. And they're always fighting for change, but always knowing that there is no end to the rebels' rebellion. There is no unlived life that becomes lived and makes everything great. All there is, is embracing the rebellious spirit, living into that, and fighting for social change, and changing your families, and changing your life, and changing your relationships, um, at, at whatever given point, and enjoying that fight, enjoying trying to make things better and changing things. So it's like James Dean, you know, the, the person says, what are you rebelling against? James Dean says, what have you got? What have you got? There is always, like I've got a good friend, Adam, who's got a t-shirt that just says, anti, dash anti, you know, people are like, You're, what are you anti? He says, again, what have you got, all right? That's the spirit of the rebel. So cultivating the spirit of the rebel in our own lives means, in a sense, changing how we look at our frustrations, our angers, um, not as something to try to get rid of too quickly, but as those things that can fuel us to make real changes in our world and in our lives. But it's not like we'll only be happy when we get to the destination. It's kind of like saying, this is what makes life meaningful. This is what makes us ethical beings. This is what makes us subjects that embrace life before death, is the enjoyment in a sense of the, the meaning, the meaning that we get from giving ourselves uh, to, uh, you know, to well, experiencing that frustration and to making changes in our lives. So what happens with the life unlived? Well, you look at the life unlived and you say to yourself, that tells me less about the world that I want to create and, and more about the problems with the world that I'm in. So we look at our utopias and we say, okay, what, is, what, are, what do our visions of utopia tell us about the problems in our society and how can we begin to change them?
all the while knowing that this rebellious spirit is the spirit that we have to remain faithful to until the day that we die. Okay, so there's some thoughts on Camus and uh, the rebel and Freud and the pleasure principle and the reality principle. So let's see if anybody's got any questions. Lots of interesting comments. Um, Oh, Adam Turkington. I was just talking about Adam. There he is. <laughs> he says, I just joined, as you said, profound boredom. Adam, I actually mentioned you and your t-shirt, Auntie. My friend Adam, if you know him, has always got very interesting t-shirts. Uh, boredom is a very high state, Janet says. That's interesting. Um, I'd need to hear more about what you're thinking about that. Uh, boredom can be seen as, yes, state of equilibrium, which can be nice in itself. Um, Okay, Janet, the rebel has internalized resistance. It used to be a cultural attribute, now getting rarer and rarer. Yeah, uh, if, if I hear you right, I think it is it is rare and rare. I actually, I'm concerned, you know, that, that the two industries that I talk about, the industries that, get, that, that propagate, often for money, um, sometimes, you know, mistakenly thinking they're doing something good, um, but propagate getting rid of this frustration through the pleasure principle and those industries that propagate getting rid of it through retreat um, into kind of like acceptance of the world as it is um, are both ways to blunt that thing that kind of makes us I think human in many ways uh, that you know that frustration that makes us human it's an attempt to blunt it to stop it from happening. What I think Christianity at its best can be is the weaponization of discontent. This is very important, the weaponization of discontent. This is what an analyst tries to do in psychoanalysis. They, in a sense, try to get you into the position of the hysteric. The hysteric is the person who questions life. So, so a neurotic, in, sorry, I cut out there. So a neurotic in general is the one who feels the problems in society. Now they feel them in their body. They have bad backs or they have fatigue or they have headaches, uh, something like that. Um, and you can't really find a biological reason for it. But sometimes it's because those are telling you that there's something in the person's life that they don't like, jobs they hate, relationships that aren't working, and those are the symptoms. Right? So the neurotic experiences the problems of their, of their life in their body. Um, and the analyst kind of puts you in a position of the hysteric who's a neurotic so that you question what's going wrong? Why am I in this job? Why am I in this relationship? Then the analyst weaponizes that discontent so that it causes transformation in your life. In the same way for me, prophets are the ones who, who weaponize the, uh, the, the discontent in society so that they turn it to the good, to the transformation of society itself. So instead of trying to dull this in ourselves we in a sense have to be part of communities that can cultivate it not by the way so that we become bitter and angry and frustrated the exact opposite of that actually this is life worth living this is a communities where you go like we can do things to make our individual lives our family lives our neighbors lives uh, the lives of those people across the world better and actually by by not trying to get rid of our frustrations and our unfulfilled desires and our unlived lives, we, we kind of weaponize those to, to live much more fully, to have life before death. Um, Julie asks, 
Uh, is the rebel always a lunar, or ca can a rebel ever be a rallier? That's pretty. I, I think, yeah, I think the rebel. There is that sense of the rebel is the individual, and admittedly, a lot of the thinkers who like the figure of the rebel, they are skeptical of 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 populism. They are skeptical of what happens when we kind of give ourselves over to groupthink, whether it's you know reading the Huffington Post together or you know whatever. Um, that you know this public opinion becomes sometimes um, damaging to us as individuals. So there is a sense in which the rebel is an individual. However, my position is we can only become individuals in healthy communities. Um, and that sounds like kind of like a paradox of sorts, but it's where in a sense you have a community that helps you think for yourself, uh, reflect on things for yourself, have rituals that help you look at your own frustrations and your own kind of issues and bring those to the surface. And so I'm an institutionalist in a way, I believe that communities, micro societies of resistance that have rebellious spirit that can help, you know, hopefully if there's enough of these micro societies of resistance, um, you know, can really help to positively transform the, the state or the country that they're in. Um, oh yeah, I'll do one more and then uh, I'll finish up. Judy there just asked, how do prophets communicate effectively without alienating Sorry, I cut out there for a second. Um, yeah, so just to repeat, uh, Judy asked, how do prophets communicate effectively without alienating others? And that's like a deeply important question for me as well, Judy, because I think what very practically what's required is um, an understanding of defense mechanisms and how indirect communication is the most direct form of communication. Uh, in other words, if you are if you say directly to me, you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z, even if I think you're right, my defenses come up. Can't help it. Defenses are there to defend your, your sense of self. And it's very hard for the person to listen. But if you're able to say, oh, you, Pete, you, know, you seem really down at the moment. Looks like things have been really tough in your life. What's happening? Then often I then am able to go, yeah, thanks for noticing and it's meant that I've been a bit of an idiot. I've been really nasty to some people. I've really reacted, acted in a way that I'm embarrassed about. And so what's happened is you've kind of indirectly provided an architectural space for me to be able to express certain things. So for me, like, if you don't want to be killed or sidelined so completely that you know, you're not listened to, uh, prophets have to be comedians, have to be singer-songwriters, they have to be storytellers, they have to be Kind of therapeutically minded um, they need to tell you know a good anecdote uh, you know all of these different forms of art are, are ways of indirectly communicating when someone tells a really kind of funny parable stroke joke and then as you're laughing about it you realize oh that's that person in the parable is me uh, or um, you know somebody who sings a song um, that talks about frustration and mourning and whatever. And then again, you're listening to that person sing and then you go, oh, that's actually speaking to my own soul and my own life. Um, so I really, in my kind of work with communities, I'm often trying to advocate for developing the art of indirect communication and really in looking at great comedians and great singer-songwriters, great artists and poets, uh, and to learn those skills. 
so that you can, in a sense, call out the problems in a way that is effective. Because it's all very easy to throw stones. It makes us feel good. I mean, to be honest, sometimes a lot of stuff that happens on the left um, is, is kind of like, you know, stone throwing, where you kind of get a feeling that the people who are throwing the stones wouldn't even want what they're asking for. Make impossible demands, but hope they never happen, because otherwise you'd lose, you know, your academic job or whatever. Um, and that's not completely the case at all, all the time, but sometimes I can kind of, you know, say things that I know are never going to happen. It just makes me feel good attacking people or whatever. But to be effective, um, I want to be able to, you know, really draw out the problems in society in a way that doesn't alienate, um, but in a way that draw, brings solidarity and, you know, um, the opportunity for real change. So there's a great book called what, Why Do I Do That? And it lists all of the defense mechanisms that individuals use, things like splitting, which makes one side, you know, if you broke up with someone, they're all bad and evil and I'm pure and good. And, uh, uh, you know, you learn these defenses, you learn why people use them. You learn not to judge them because you realize that they're there to protect, but you also learn how they can become damaging. And then of course, the idea in the book, if you do get it, is my primary interest is all of these defense mechanisms are used by societies as well. You'll see splitting, you'll see, um, uh, you know, uh, reaction formation, all these defense mechanisms you'll see not only individuals use, but whole communities use. And as you learn how to get around those defense mechanisms with individuals, you can also learn, I think, to be more effective in your community, pointing out defenses um, in a way that that works. Because I, I, I don't know you, but maybe you're saying, well, a lot of my friends have family members and friends on Facebook who kind of sometimes say things that like I or others would think are like terrible. <laughs> and the, the problem with it as well is there's this thing, I forget what you call it, but when you don't hear the tone and you don't know the person really, you also add a lot more to what is said on Facebook. So someone says something very inappropriate, uh, but if you were sitting with them, you would maybe quite quickly hear that the reason why they said that was partly because of maybe some past experience, et cetera, et cetera. You hear the tone, you know, you hear them saying it in a way that they're, they're, they're questioning it when they're saying it or whatever it is, but you don't get any of that on Facebook. And so the, the response can often be just to, you know, attack back. And, uh, and sometimes that's fine. But, but sometimes if we, if we kind of are more appreciative of, of defenses and all of that, we might find more constructive ways to engage that actually make changes. My friend Jay Baker is very good at this. Uh, there's people he's engaged with that I would just write off. You know, it's people who, are, who come across as homophobic, for example, and I just go like, why would I want to engage there? And, and he, he does, and he goes, listen, can we get coffee? And by the way, Jay's a total introvert. He doesn't even like people. You know, he doesn't like going out. He's like, he likes staying in as whatever. But he's, a, you know, I say he doesn't like people. But he loves people. He just doesn't like socializing much. But he'll do that. And he'll go and do the thing that he hates because he wants to sit down. And, and I have seen him time and again um, get into incredibly productive, transformative conversations with people who I would, I would have just written off, you know. Um, so... You know, and, yeah, and, and one final thing that on that is uh, uh, just remembering that the rebel is a type of revolutionary, but they're just with a little bit of a difference. Just with a little bit of a difference. Um, okay. 
All right, well, I've been on for 30 minutes, so that's my usual spot. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, I'll probably do this again in a few days' time. Uh, I, I think I mentioned last time, not sure, but I have my uh, uh, Orthodox Heretic now on audiobook. However, I've had a little bit of trouble in my shop. People are buying it, and for some reason, sometimes the files don't download. So I'm only mentioning it to say I'm really sorry if you've bought it and the files haven't downloaded. I'm, I'm figuring it out. I will send you them. I promise. I'm not just stealing your money to get the private jet to um, escape. Uh, the five copies that I've sold uh, are not going to buy that private jet. So anyway, sorry if that's you, um, but I think it's fixed. Hopefully it's fixed and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.